1: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: Hey there, it's Sam with Candidate Confessional. Listen, some exciting news. We have Season 2 in the works. We've recorded a bunch of episodes. Some not exciting news. We're not quite there ready to unveil Season 2, but... In the interim, we have something kind of cool and exciting for y'all. We're gonna talk about healthcare. It's not a candidate who's lost office, it's a legislation process that's maybe successful. So not exactly our theme, but it gives you something to chew on and listen to, and we hope it wets your appetite for the season. So I've put together a panel. We have Jeff Young, our healthcare reporter, Jonathan Cohn, a healthcare reporter, Matt Fuller, our congressional reporter. They're gonna talk about what's going on with healthcare reform, the prospects of repeal and replace, and what it means for the lawmakers who are pushing it and those who are opposing it. We hope you enjoy this. And, of course, keep listening because Candidate Confessional Season 2 is coming soon. So uh, the reason I want to do this is to make sense of not just what happened yesterday when the House uh, started the process of repealing and replacing Obamacare, but to tell the entire context of this movement and maybe to look forward at what might happen down the road. Uh, And I think we should start at the beginning. And I want to bring in Jeff because Jeff is – the keeper of the history of the repeal and replace effort. Um, How quickly did it start after Obamacare was passed? And walk us through, Jeff, sort of how many iterations and uh, variations we've seen with repeal and replace and why it's taken this long.
1: Well, it goes back a little further. The year is 2008. America has just elected a black man president and people are freaking out. Um, But I mean, if you you don't want to talk about the if we we could skip over the sort of ACA history to like, you know, the opposition, first of all, and this doesn't directly relate to the bill that the House passed, but it's sort of part of the same overall campaign. The day that uh, Barack Obama signed the Affordable Care Act into law is the day that one of the big lawsuits that went to the Supreme Court was filed. Right. So there wasn't a lag time from the moment this became law, uh, Republicans in Congress and conservative activists were trying to undermine it and undo it. Uh, so, you know, I mean, to the extent that, uh, that there are people still walking around saying that, uh, oh, we need to give Trump a chance. Uh, nobody really gave the Affordable Care Act much of a chance either Um, and you know i mean over the last you know the seven years and change that led up to the to the vote like everyone knows like the house voted to uh, like dozens of times on bills that repealed all of most of or big parts of the affordable care act but they did that when obama was president so he's never going to sign it meaning it was really easy for them to do that because they didn't have to contend with the consequences of taking away the benefits that law created nor come up with a plausible alternative. And I think that, you know, I think whether you would term the American Health Care Act a plausible alternative, I, I suppose, depends entirely on your point of view. But it does not attempt to achieve the same goals through different means. You know, it would cover a lot fewer people, uh, sure. fewer consumer protections. It just, this is sort of, I think, where they ended up because they they locked themselves into this promise to repeal without giving a whole lot of thought to what they wanted to do instead. And so in the end, they just rushed through a kind of a mess sure. so they could say they did it.
2: Well, OK. I guess the question that I've talked – when I talk to people about this and, and John, Jonathan, why don't you jump in on this one? They They look at the affordable character and they say, well, this is – sort of a inherently conservative way to do healthcare reform. It was birthed from the heritage foundation. It was put into place on a state level by Mitt Romney in Massachusetts. Why do Republicans have such strong objections to an idea that is basically a conservative idea?
0: Well, I think you can, you can sort of, there's, there are two obvious explanations here. Um, one is that, um, you know that black man who became president, who Jeff mentioned a few minutes ago, signed it. And you know that there's a partisan element to this; that this was Barack Obama's law, uh, this was the Democrats' law. They are against it, so I think that's that's one part of it. Um, the other part of it is I, I don't think, at a fundamental level, it's clear that most Republicans believe in what the Affordable Care Act is trying to do. In other words, the Affordable Care Act is a cons- is, is the Democrats' effort to say, and, and they were very explicit about this, right, when they created the Affordable Care Act. They were like, we want to get to universal health care. We think it's important that everybody should be able to get health care at a price they can afford. We think that's not going to happen on its own, so the government's going to have to get involved. The government's going to have to spend money. There's going to have to be some kind of regulation. But we are willing to... Come, we, we don't, we, we are willing to give up our best, ideal way of doing this. I mean, you know, most Democrats, many Democrats, certainly many liberals, you know, if you let them have a blank check, you know, they could just wave a magic wand. They'd create a single payer system or something like one of the, you know, more socialistic looking European systems. But this was Democrats saying, no, 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 we want to get here. So we're going to, we're going to use, you know, a conservative goal that we you know, we know, Various times, you know, can Republicans have said they liked, and there was a Republican governor who implemented it, and people forget there was a California Republican governor, Schwarzenegger, tried to implement it there too. He couldn't get it through. Um, and it turns out that actually, no Republicans don't really believe that, that, you know, they have at times, uh, uh at the federal level, at least, they have at times said they supported that goal. But really, they said they supported that because it was politically convenient. And at the end of the day, the fact of the matter is that getting to universal health care uh, it requires uh, taxes. It requires either creating a government program or regulating private insurance. These are not things that Republicans want to do. Um, they are they oppose these things, and they in their minds that this is not a goal worth pursuing given the trade offs. And so I think that is where we are at. The catch here is that, and I don't want to jump ahead in the conversation, you know, that a lot of people have insurance right now and taking that away is actually difficult. And that's the, that's the struggle that Republicans are in.
3: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really,
1: really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com.
3: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer.
2: I mean, John laid out sort of how they've dealt with this um, from an ideological standpoint. But in terms of the politics of this, like how integral was the promise to repeal and replace Obamacare in – the elections of all of these House Republicans. I mean, was, was it really the thing that got
4: them into office, and was it the cause that they that, you know, rallied around? That's certainly true for a lot of them. I mean, the 2010 class, with I think was 88 House Republicans, and uh, I, I do know every Republican in Congress ran on repealing and replacing Obamacare. Uh, although I guess you could maybe lose part of that replacing part, you know, some of them weren't so keen on that part, but. Um, they're all there. I mean, the twenty ten class, the, the gains uh, in twenty twelve. I think Democrats won back like twelve seats or something like that. Um, but it, it was a massive shift from after after the Democrats did Obamacare, and then Republicans come in and um, do this, you know, uh, game where um, we're going to re- repeal and replace this immediately and. Um, oh, but you know, Obama Obama's not going to sign that I guess and so I guess we're not going to put forward a plan or whatever. So it was just all in this um, very nebulous sort of theoretical
2: … But they, they – so the talk that you hear from them is that they have to do this because they promised their constituents yeah. and they can't go back home without doing this. They're,
4: I mean there's some truth to that. I mean they're, look, they're, I think a lot of constituents would be mad and they would look at um, – and this was certainly true for Paul Ryan I would say that um, – People were looking at this as, as sort of a, uh, a litmus test on his leadership. Um, looking at Republicans, like, oh, you know, once again, Congress can't get anything done. Uh, but doing this actually required them to not care about the politics of it because ultimately, the politics, I think, are really bad, and to not care at all about the policy. And and and, and the amazing thing is, I really don't think that um, the House Republicans, you know, writ large, believe in what they just passed. I do think they were able to stomach it, which says. Quite a bit, but sure. um, the fact that they just did this because it's advancing a bill, it's it's you know checking a box. It's we repe- repealed, we we passed a bill and now it's on the Senate. And maybe there's a consideration here that's like a, a almost a founder's consideration where the House goes up for elections every two years, uh, Senate goes up every six. So if you actually failed to do this, um, and you know if the uh, Senate Republicans failed to do this, and it's a very favorable year for them, maybe there's not so bad for them, but House, the House Republicans can say, well, we passed our we passed bill, it, and it's, yes. it's now it's on the Senate. Well, I
2: guess it's probably important for us to explain what it is they passed. And Jeff, you wrote an article on this yesterday. Um, what is, what's in the bill? Uh, what are the key provisions um, in its current iteration?
1: Well, I mean, I, I think you have to start with what it undoes before trying to describe what it attempts to do instead, right? So the Affordable Care Act had a ton of money in there to expand the Medicaid program for uh, poor adults, it also had a ton of money in there to provide uh, tax credits for private health insurance for people who were, you know, more than poor but not wealthy, you know, kind of low-middle-income families. Um, it takes both of those things away, right? So there's $880 billion 10-year cut in Medicaid, which amounts to about a quarter of uh, of its spending over time. Uh, that's not just undoing the Affordable care expansion. It also just cuts program funding for Everybody on Medicaid and, you know, that's mainly like kids and pregnant women and people with disabilities and uh, elderly people in nursing homes. It doesn't specifically say they're going to lose their coverage, but it takes the money away that pays for it. States don't have that kind of money to kick in the difference. So you're going to see, according to the CBO score, the first version of this bill, 14 million fewer people. With Medicaid, and then on the private insurance side. So if you if your income is low enough, you get these tax credits uh, under Obamacare. They're pretty generous if you're low income. Um, <clears throat> you know, take an insurance policy that costs thousand dollars a month, and maybe you're paying fifty for it or a hundred. Um, it gets rid of those. In its place, it offers tax credits that are. Almost always quite a bit smaller that are not tied to income but instead simply to age, right? So now, <clears throat> if you are older and lower income, you probably won't be able to afford your health insurance uh, uh, under the, the, this Republican bill. In addition to that, um, it, it weakens the current laws' protections for people with pre existing conditions, which, very simply put, you can get insurance, period. Regardless of your medical history, your health status, and they can't charge you extra because, you know, you, as happened to me once, had a bruised rib and got rejected by an insurance company. Um, they can't do that anymore. What the, the, the bill the House passed would do is tell states they're allowed to get rid of those rules if they want some of them may, some of them may not, but uh, the ironclad sure. guarantee is no longer there. Um, and then uh, the other piece of this bill, and you know, it's funny. This is one of those things that when you describe it accurately, it almost sounds partisan. But it's a giant six hundred billion dollar tax cut for rich people and healthcare companies. So they take almost nine hundred billion dollars out of Medicaid and give six hundred billion of that to people who already have tons of money. That's the bill.
3: Wow.
2: Well, okay. And (laughs) John, uh, first of all, does Jeff describe it right? I'd hate to turn you into a colleague. But uh, secondly, you know, you hear Republicans come out there and say, well, we're, you know, we're just undoing the tax uh, hikes in Obamacare. So we have to undo them. Um, pre-existing conditions. We actually do have layers of protection in there via high risk pools, for instance. Uh, the Medicaid cuts are not actually cuts. We're giving states flexibility to revamp the program and make it more efficient. Um, I'm playing devil's advocate to be here, but like are they right? are they wrong? What's going on?
0: so Jeff is right, the Republicans are wrong <laughs> <laughs> uh, so let us let, look at the two big ones that you mentioned that have come out right, which is the the um the Medicaid cuts won't matter, and the you know and, and the pre existing conditions and I want to start with the medicaid because I, I feel like the Medicaid stuff frankly has not gotten enough attention uh as, and I think that's about to change. By the way, in the Senate, but um, uh, the the idea that you 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 hear Republicans say, "Oh, Medicaid's a broken program. You know, this will give states flexibility." You know, to our 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 reforms, they call them reforms, right? This Medicaid reform, you know, will give states flexibility and that will let them improve coverage for poor people. So, n- number one, Medicaid, like any large program, has its pluses and minuses. It does some things very well. There are things it does not do well. Um, taking 800, you know, plus billion dollars out of the program will not fix the problems. Taking 800 plus billion dollars out of the program will make them much worse. Um, they will take health insurance away from people. You know, 14 million people. Uh, and I, I, just that to, to stand up there and and we've all heard it on TV. We've seen people to say that to to, to say with a straight face that taking 800 billion dollars out of Medicaid will not hurt a lot of people is just a lie. And there, there's no other word for it. And, and we should call it a lie. It is it is a lie. And you know people can decide whether the trade-offs of you know taking can can decide whatever they want about the value choice of taking as jeff said 800 plus billion dollars out of medicaid and giving hundreds of billion dollars in tax breaks to corporations and the wealthiest three percent of households in america so that's not true.
2: And what about the pre-existing conditions uh, uh, pushback that you hear from Republicans? Is that they say, "Well, we're going to, you know, protect them right. by if they have continuous coverage, they can't get dropped. And you know, even if they do get dropped, we're going to allow them to buy into these high-risk pools that will fund with, you know, eight, over a hundred billion now, eight billion more because of the Upton amendment. Right. Um, unpack that for right. us.
0: Right. So there's a lot of hand-waving going on here, and I see, and I and I worry that it works because it's really it's hard to follow these details. But let's just take this sort of two-step argument that make that you just offered, right? So the the first thing they say is that, look, you're not going to be subject, you know, we we call this medical underwriting. That's the process where an insurance company can charge you more for the broken rib that Jeff had or diabetes or you're a cancer survivor. So uh, states would now be able to get rid of that. And if that happens, you know, and you have a pre-existing condition, you'd be subject to higher premiums. So, you know, a Republican member of Congress, if sitting here on the phone, would say, no, 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 that's only if you have a lapse in coverage. In other words, and only if you drop insurance for a while and then try to get it. Well, sure. But, you know, number one, people have lapses in coverage, right? They lose their job, et cetera. And, And that's true today. Um Remember what Jeff was mentioning before. They're taking away a lot of the financial assistance that low income people get. So the likelihood that you're going to have a lapse in coverage just increased dramatically. Um, you know, for, you know, somebody who's making their family making $30,000 a year, you get laid off. Uh, you're, you're not going to be able to pay for COBRA, certainly, right? You're probably, you know, won't, you can't scrape together now the money. And, you know, under Obamacare, you're going to get these tax credits that make insurance affordable. Now you don't. Your insurance lapses for three months. You get a new, jo- new job, you have to buy your own insurance, and suddenly you're priced out of the market because you have a pre-existing condition. So the second thing is, oh, but that's okay because we have these high-risk pools. So what these are, these are special insurance programs that states would create. And if you can't get insurance, you know, through uh because of a pre-existing condition, then you can get insurance here. Well, you know, they've tried this before. States had them. Um they did not work well because they were always underfunded. Um and uh you know so if you got insurance through a high risk pool typically it had some combination of much higher premiums it had an annual or lifetime limit on benefits it didn't cover certain things um there might be a 6 or 12 month waiting period before you could actually get coverage for your pre existing condition they were just it was terrible insurance because it didn't have enough money and sure enough it doesn't have enough money right now um no one uh, there's a lot of numbers thrown around but pretty much even conservative experts uh, sympathetic to what the Republicans are trying to do will tell you there's not nearly enough money in these high risk pools. And uh, so, you know, th- 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 at the bottom line, you look at what they're doing and there's just no way you can say with a straight face uh, that people with preexisting conditions won't be significantly worse off mm. under the House Republican bill. But the fact is that you can't say it with a straight face, except I can tell you watching the Sean Spicer two days ago and seeing Republicans on TV in the last 48 hours <laughs> that apparently I'm wrong. You can, in fact, say it with a straight face because they are.
2: They are. And it's driving con mad. Uh, <laughs> so it, you're, what, what, what these guys are describing is sort of like a shit turd sandwich of healthcare policy that, in fact, they couldn't pass the House the first time uh, when they were going to bring it to vote. So, Matt, how the fuck – Were they able to turn this into something that was able to pass by the narrowest of margins?
4: Yeah. I mean, it's just like forgiving for a moment, the horrible policy, the horrible politics of it. It's like an amazing feat that they were able to do this just by muscling it through. Um, On one level. Okay. So like there are Republicans here. You start off and I think this is true. And I've, I've, caught flack from members of Congress when I've said this to them, but there are about 150 members, maybe even 170 members who really don't care about the policy. Um, and these are the guys who you know, will say, I read the bill or whatever. But I mean, I, even to read this bill, you can say it, it comes in at like 55 pages or whatever. To read it, you actually have to kind of have read Obamacare. I mean, it's not like you know what repeal section 1102, like, OK, well, you need to go into the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, and actually read Section eleven oh two, which may be twenty pages. Um, I'm, you know, so I'm going to venture to say that no one really did that, um, and those who did uh, didn't make up their minds based on on the policy stuff. So, just forgiving all that for a moment, that this is horrible policy, uh, horrible politics. One hundred seventy of them started off by saying, "Sure, it's a, it's our repeal. I'm with leadership. I'm always going to be there. Sure, of course, you know, and I'll." Whatever the talking points from um, leadership delivers, you can bank those
2: votes. You still need forty-six other votes,
4: right? Or well, I mean, normally two eighteen, but uh, with the absences we have, so then you have the Freedom Caucus, uh, which is an obvious sort of they kind of have a stranglehold on this. They have right now thirty-five, but to starting this actually it started with thirty-seven, went down to thirty-six, now but down to thirty-five. So they they can single-handedly sink a piece of legislation. Um, what they're learning what we're all learning now is that the way and this has been their theory and what they want to show and they and they did demonstrate it this time around to get anything passed through the house you have to start with them you have to uh, fill fulfill their requests and make sure that they're happy because otherwise you won't get there and 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 the lesson is too because they're saying look you'll you'll squeeze the moderates you guys are really good at whipping once you have us because we're the ones who actually give you trouble and that's true um moderates you know they're sitting on nice committees and it's like oh that energy and commerce uh you know spot would be a shame if something happened to it you know <laughs> or or even better hey i i hear you want to get on financial services in 2 years or hey you want you want to get that bill or um you know one 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 member who i i the whole way through you know i would heard he was going to be a no but i really had some doubts because he wants to be the next armed services chairman uh, michael turner he did in fact vote no but um the freedom cox's gambit was you appease us and then you guys will get there the rest of the way. So just to summarize this, essentially,
2: the conservatives in the caucus said, we don't think that the moderates have can, any can backbone, strong. right? They will bend. Yep. And so therefore, we'll call our bluff. And yep.
4: sure enough. And that worked. I mean, they, they, they brought a bill that they, they acknowledged was a bad bill. I mean, <laughs> the, the funny thing about this is. There's uh, there's there's really two scenarios or maybe three scenarios that one scenario is that um, and this is sort of what moderates are saying is oh well these this new amendment that the Freedom Caucus added it won't really do much um, and you know if that's true then the Freedom Caucus's former statements about how horrible this, this HCA is uh, that stands. Uh, if it's not true then if, if what the Freedom Caucus says is this is a radical change and um, basically this is their their amendment was the one that really undermined the pre existing conditions um, component as well as the essential health benefits. These ten, li- this list of ten benefits that uh, plans had to cover, uh, like maternity care, like uh, lab services, and uh, emergency room visits. Um, they want to undermine those things, and th- they say that will actually lower the premiums. But the moderates are saying, so they're saying yes, states will absolutely. Uh, ad- they will choose to do this. That You have to set up a high-risk pool to do it. But they will do it. Moderates are saying it won't happen. And between the two, there's just – it's sort of this incoherent babble. Of, but
2: they both have found a way to believe that much sure. different viewpoints.
4: But I mean I don't think moderates actually believe this is a good bill. I don't think conservatives – So why do it? Well, that's a great question. I mean a lot of it is the muscle squeezing of, of, hey, you know, you want to be part of the team and, hey, you don't want to cross Trump and – um, come on, was this just advancing the bill? And don't you want to be part of the conversation? Who was the
2: most instrumental person in convincing them to do it? Trump,
4: McHenry, well, pa- Patrick McHenry. Ryan. yeah, the chief deputy whip is getting he'll he'll chronically he doesn't look for uh, credit on much. This of these is things.
2: Patrick McHenry. Yeah, he's another Western North
4: Carolina, North Carolina guy, uh, bordering district to Mark Meadows, the Freedom Caucus chairman. Um, technically, the number five Republican. Let's say he's number four. He's a cho- he's the first chosen Republican. He's the, the the whip, the majority whip, which is Steve Scalise gets to choose this position. And this guy, I mean, Scalise whips, uh, but he's really like someone who hobnobs with um, lobbyists and fundraising. McHenry's the guy who actually whips, who actually works these guys. And I and I watched him. I've watched him closely for years now, but uh, particularly in the last week, in the last couple months. His whip style is, you know, you sit down with a member, you just let them talk, you hear them out, you nod a lot, and then you come in with one or two points, you let them talk again, and then you basically say, Yeah, but can you can you get there with us? Can you be there with us? If I need your vote, will you will you vote for us? And that was another situation here too, is you had a lot of guys who said, if you need one vote, Okay, I'll with you, and then you know McHenry would go back. I actually watched this conversation with one member. Uh, you know, he said, "Okay, if you need one, I'll vote for it." And then McHenry let him talk for a while, and this, "Okay, if you need, if we need like three or four, can we? You know, at uh, three or four, it's the same thing. Come on, like because some guys are the same. Okay, if you need three or four, and they got this by just <laughs> squeezing it through on on that. And and conservatives were right. They if. if the power in this conference now is in the ability to say no and to stick by your guns, and conservatives have that power because their their power outside of con- their their power comes from outside of Congress. They're not on good committees, um, and yeah, I mean, it, it, they, they just have to. They
2: played their cards right. right. So Jeff, this thing's going to the Senate now, or it's not going to the Senate. The Senate says they're going to draft their own bill, uh, according to Lamar Alexander. What do you think that bill is going to look like?
1: Well, it's really hard to say and and the main reason why is that it seems at present anyway that one of the biggest obstacles to getting enough Republican support for an an Obamacare repeal replace bill in the Senate is that you've got people – you've got Republican senators from states that did the Affordable Care Act Medicaid expansion and want to preserve it. So states like – senators from places like Arkansas and Alaska and some other stuff I could rattle off a bunch of other state names, but you know, Louisiana—that's another one. So you've got like key senators who are saying out loud and have been this whole time, like, "Hey, whoa, uh, I want to protect my state's interest here." They maybe they'll cave, but if you—but if you—if part of the conversation is whether or not to undo the Medicaid expansion, you're already not talking about Obamacare repeal anymore because the Medicaid expansion is like how half—it's like how half the people who got coverage from the Affordable Care Act got it. So if you're not getting rid of that what's left to get rid of Um, it also I mean it's it's dangerous I suppose to read between the lines but some of the immediate response from Republican senators yesterday about the House passed bill was that they sort of seem like they think it's a big pile of crap and not even worth using as a starting point but then but then see the problem is that You know, if remember that the House rushed through this because they wanted to rush through it, they had other items on their agenda, and also I think that Trump was embarrassed when they failed to get it to the floor the first time, and that motivated a lot of action. But the Senate now faces essentially the same policy dilemma, right? Whatever you do that's not Obamacare or single payer is going to cover a lot fewer people, especially if part of your goal is to reduce federal spending on health care so that you can cut taxes. Yeah, so, so the Senate's in the same kind of pickle. Um, I, I really I, – I have no idea what to expect in terms of the, the pace of this, when the process will start in earnest, whether it will be driven by Mitch McConnell and the leadership or whether he'll leave it up to committee chairs or rank and file people or what have you. Um, I think it is safe to say though – well, maybe not safe. But my hunch is that the Senate won't be able to move in three months the way the House did. It's going to take a you while. You think
2: they go slower.
1: Plus, I mean, whatever they come out with, assuming that they actually come up with something, which is not a guarantee, they may give up. Um, whatever that is will probably be quite different from what the House passed. And then they have to figure out how to reconcile those things. Sure.
2: All right, John, is there a place in between the parties um, that health care reform can be crafted by that? I mean, could theoretically Democrats – Uh, in Congress say, you know, this is getting a little too scary, the prospect of like full on repeal and replace and and something like this House Bill becoming law. Maybe it's time for us to sort of try to play uh, triage here, to to insert ourselves and uh, maybe craft something that has our input instead of us saying no to everything. And if so, let's say they do make that gamble or that calculation, I should say. What does that reform look like?
0: So I don't. I've seen no signs of that. Um, you know, the most interesting senator that I've seen so far is Senator Manchin, who, if there's anyone in the Democratic caucus, right, who's going to be the first to break and, you know, Manchin from West Virginia to sort of start talking with the Republicans, he would be the guy. Um, and he's drawn a pretty hard line. Frankly, he sounds nearly identical to Chuck Schumer or Bernie Sanders. Uh, you know, the line the Democrats have been able to hold so far in this debate is, we very much would like to work on a bipartisan bill. We agree that there are problems with the Affordable Care Act. There are parts of the country where it's not working well. We'd love to fix them. But the, uh, the, the, the ticket into that conversation is Republicans saying, fine, we will leave the basic structure of the law and the coverage expansion You know, in place, and we will then work on a series of, you know, bipartisan reforms where we get some things we want. You get some things that you want. And Manchin has been as hard, you know, has drawn as hard a line on that, like I said, as Bernie Sanders. And he's on TV a lot and says that. Now, does that change? I don't know. You know, the the fact is, again, I mean, I think that line happens to be true and that I actually think it's not hard to imagine, you know, in theory, what a sort of bipartisan set of fixes to the law that actually, you know, the law has real problems. And, you know, as we're seeing, we've seen recently there were. They're real. Some of these markets, and some of the, uh, particularly in rural, more rural states, really in trouble. And I'm sure Democrats would be thrilled to, you know, in theory, you know, if they could get that kind of conversation going, you could, you could uh, put a sort of liberal and conservative health expert in a room for two hours, and they'd come out with a bipartisan package. But, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know that that, I don't see that coming together. I've seen no signs yet of that kind of conversation starting.
2: All right. So, last question for Matt. Uh, It looks like this will be. As Jonathan says, a primarily Republican-authored enterprise. Uh, the Senate's going to do their thing. As Jeff mentioned, it's going to be different than the House. Two questions. One is what you, you know the whip count better than everyone else. So, what is the chance that they can maybe find a way to you know meld their differences on the bills? Yes.
4: I'm, <clears throat> I'm maybe not as pessimistic as a lot of people. I mean, I, I certainly don't think it's it's a oh, the, the, the disagreements between the House and Senate are just are, are totally insurmountable. I think that there's actually a lot of will on the House side. And we we saw just now um, just how willing, I guess, Republicans are to break here. The question is still on when it comes back from the Senate, and I assume that there will, it will be a very different bill, um, is the Freedom Caucus willing to say no and stand up for this bill? And, uh, you know, I don't – I think the first time around, I mean, I think that – I think that if they had really stuck with the the, the current the, the system that they wanted to go here with the they wanted the first HCA bill to not have the pre existing conditions and they were and they thought you know Trump thought maybe too if I just pressure the Freedom Caucus they'll break um, and they, there were some certain there were some signs there for a little bit that they were kind of cracking. Again, they were at 37. Now they're sure. at 35. They lost two members and it so was you, around 20. you think that if, they,
2: if, if the ball gets rolling, they get a bill into the committee uh, uh, between the House and the Senate, yeah, it's, the conference it's, committee, it's, that the pressure will be so much on the Freedom Caucus to like take that final step that they would do it?
4: It's close because, again, I think that there were about I think at the lowest point, I think there were 17 no's in the Freedom Caucus uh, right before that first vote, which was pulled, and they got it up to about 20 or 21 after the meeting with Mike Pence. Mike Pence actually moved the whip count in, in the, the Freedom Caucus' favor. Okay. Um, but you know those core guys, again, they all ran – every Republican there ran on, on Obamacare. And we just saw how uh, leadership, if they want to hand out – like you know, the the carrots here. They can do that. Uh, those guys are not on good committees. If you want to get on a good committee, uh, this is one way to do it. Um, I, again, I heard of, of members maybe being threatened that they could lose committee assignments, so the, the few ones that they actually do like. There are ways here for, for leadership to muscle this through on, on the back end. Um, it's just a question of whether the, this bill is so different from the Senate and whether or not there are things that are tucked in there from the, from the Senate that are maybe are politically... Just infeasible. One one thing um, it would be the Hyde Amendment with abortion. I, sure. I just don't think that's going to pass the House. But
2: but you're so you're more a little bit more optimistic about the bill's chances than anyone else. I don't want to use the word
4: it. optimistic, but uh, I think that yes, I think it's possible. <laughs> okay. um, and and I and I don't think you should discount that possibility.
2: All right, let's end it there. Uh, we will. I like this. We should do this again sometimes. I'm sure there's going to be plenty more healthcare news to cover. So we will reconvene and do it again. Thanks, guys. You can say thanks back.
0: (laughs) Oh, well, that was fun, Now Let's do this again. Yeah, that was good.
2: Thank you. Appreciate it. Bye, guys. Bye, everybody. All right. Thanks, Jeff, John, and Matt for that. Like we mentioned, this is an unconventional episode of Candid Conventional. We're not even going to call it an episode of Candid Conventional. It's more like an appetizer for the forthcoming season, which is a gourmet course, and you all should tune in. So subscribe, get ready. We have a really great season coming up, and we can't wait for you to enjoy that. See you soon.